Welcome in this week's edition of Downtown the Podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here. This is where our daily show, Downtown, originates every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We'll talk with two talented performers today, get some great stories. Uh, one of them, a singer, songwriter, music historian, author, producer, actor. He's done it all through the years and was just on with us a few weeks ago. But so many great stories from Billy Vera. We said at the time we, we had to have him back on, and, and we did. And Billy, uh, you'll hear that conversation in the second half of the program. But up first, an actress who uh, joined the Newhart Show in its second season and was nominated for an Emmy Award for Best Supporting Actress every season she was on the show, the role of Miss Stephanie. Stephanie Vanderkellen, Julia Duffy made it her own in her years on Newhart. And uh, she returned to our program to talk about, well, some of uh, our favorite Newhart episodes and much more. Hi, Rich. I'm glad to be back. Well, how are you handling this situation? What's going on uh, in, in your world these days? Well, I'm in California. We are bi-coastal, but I'm glad that we're in California uh, because I live sort of on top of a hill in the hills, and I don't have to be around people. So it feels very safe. Also, we have masks left over from the fires, so that helps. Well, we're glad to hear that. Well, it's certainly some very challenging times for everybody. And and you've been pretty vocal on social media, and I appreciate that. In uh, like many of us, I guess we'll call it concern for what seems to be a lack of national leadership on this issue. Well, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how anyone can defend it because it's just very simple. I mean, the other day, the statement from the White House from you-know-who was um, the mortality rate is going down, at least in my opinion. How can you have an opinion about math? (laughs) I mean, those are numbers. You can't have an opinion about it. Alternative facts, right? Yeah, alternative facts. There you go, alternative truth. It's uh, just crazy. I also, someone I know has died from the virus, and it just changes how you feel about everything because you know it didn't have to happen. And we're talking about uh, Mark, uh, who uh, was friends with uh, a couple of my friends who had worked with him in mm-hmm. New York theater. I mean, what a what a sad loss, the loss of Terrence McNally the other day as well. Yes. Um, Terrence was very in, in a vulnerable position physically. He was already on oxygen, I believe, for other um, medical conditions. But uh, Mark Blum, this fantastic actor, had no underlying conditions, and he couldn't have been healthier. Well, and that's so that's the the other big lie that is out there is that the only people who will be affected by this are the elderly or those with with preexisting conditions, and and that's not the truth. We're seeing people here in the state of Maine uh, today. We learned of a, a case of a youngster under 10 years old, and there are plenty of people in their 20s and 30s um, dying and hospitalized in rough condition here. Uh, this it may affect some people differently, but it's not discriminating when it comes to individuals. It's really not. And some of the things you read about the Spanish flu, 
were very interesting and people should take note. And a very strong theory about why the Spanish flu killed so many young men, so many soldiers, of course, uh, is that their immune systems overreacted because they were young and their immune systems hadn't experienced this before. And it was the immune system's reaction that killed them because great numbers of young people died from from the Spanish flu. Great, huge numbers. And I think that's something that, you know, you have to keep in mind. The virus is very powerful. It needs to be powerful to do what it wants to do. It's a living thing. Absolutely. We're talking with Julia Duffy here on downtown. Well, you know, more than ever, we're looking for uh, distractions and things to make us smile and to, to get away from the reality and the bad news that's out there. And and I thought one of the ways we could do it with you this afternoon is to uh, revisit a few of our favorite and maybe some of your favorite episodes from New Heart. Oh, okay. I hope my memory serves me all right here. <laughs> well, I, I went back through and, and uh, made note of a few that I loved along the way and that featured Stephanie. And, and one of my favorites was uh, in season two, an episode called Animal Attractions, when Stephanie's husband shows up for the first time. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Good. You picked something I remember. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was very funny. And the B storyline in that was that, uh, oh, George found a dog and wanted to keep the dog. But um, the dog's owners were looking for it. And... And then my husband came, and everybody met him for the first time, and he was like, what, 75 years old? <laughs> right. Was <laughs> well, not what you expected. And, you know, I hadn't been on the show that long, and I thought, it's kind of funny, you know, we're waiting for the dog's owners to come. We're waiting for Stephanie's husband to come. Why isn't there a mistaken identity there? And they're talking about, you know, the wrong person walks in the door, and you can imagine how Bob would react talking about Stephanie, but they're actually talking about the dog. <laughs> I thought that would be perfect, but I thought you don't do that. I, I can't give the writers my idea. So as we were taping that night and I was off to the side talking to the writers, I said, you know, it kind of surprised me that you didn't think about having a mix-up with the two people that were waiting for, one for a dog and one for <laughs> Stephanie. And they turned to me and said, why didn't you say anything? okay so i learned to start saying something even if you get shut down because everybody's uh, there's no bad ideas in comedy Uh, one of our favorite guests on the show is the wonderful bill sanderson and one of my favorite episodes was that from season three when his character larry decided that he was going to marry miss stephanie well i remember a lot of things with larry and miss stephanie i didn't I didn't quite remember that he wanted to marry me. Well, because you, you, your character gave him a compliment, and he interpreted that as all the opening he needed. Okay. <laughs> because I know there was a show where I had to... That's right. It must have been that show. Isn't this terrible, my memory? <laughs> um, but it was hundreds of episodes. Right. I know. Um, but I had to go over and break it off with him or give him bad news. So it must have been that episode. It was. And I remember there was discussion on why would she do that? Why would she even bother with him? And I said, well, because maybe that's one of her favorite things to do in the world is to break someone's heart. 
<laughs> because it's very flattering that you have to break someone's heart. So they, they went in that direction. And I do remember that that was a very funny bit. I uh, think I had to choose an outfit for breaking someone's heart or something. <laughs> I think it also pointed out one of the, the, the great things about the character of Stephanie is that in spite of everything and, and some of the negative aspects, there was never a meanness to that character at all. So even in the breaking up process, she wasn't mean about it. No, she, I, that was something that there were many, many discussions about in the beginning because there's no point in laughing at her if she's just being mean. I mean, then it's not funny anymore if she's hostile. I wanted it to be her reactions to people. I didn't want her actually attacking people without a reason. Mm. Um, there was, I remember there was a perfect line one time when I said something about, of course, she was raised by her parents to believe she was the most beautiful girl in the world and had a very inflated idea of her looks. And there was some line where I had to say something very self-serving, very conceited. And I had to say to Joanna, you know, you you wouldn't understand this. And I, but I, I made it very sympathetic. I was very sympathetic. <laughs> and also she was kind of lucky that she had never had to deal with this. <laughs> and this is the way to do it rather than someone who makes snide remarks about somebody's look, because that's just not funny. Unless you're Louis De Palma, you can get away with it. Well, but right. Generally speaking, uh, a cute young girl can't get away with that kind of thing. Uh, that episode, like a number of them uh, in New Hearts Run, uh, was directed by Dick Martin. Uh, everybody remembers from Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. What yes. was he like to work with as a director? Oh, he's very laid back and uh, a very sweet guy. He's a, an old friend of Bob. They've been friends forever. I mean, we saw a lot of Dick, not even just when he was directing, but he hung out. I mean, those guys were hanging out in the set. Rickles was hanging out. You can't even imagine how much fun it was. Was there an episode that, that stands out to you, a favorite for you to work on? Um, oh, gosh. The episode where I had the baby was mm. really, really funny. And also a series of episodes when Michael and I broke up and he <laughs> had another girlfriend. And then I, oh, he fell in love with the girl because she made him peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> And so I tried to learn to make peanut butter sandwiches, get him back. And it had some wonderful lines in it. Uh, I remember I followed her into the ladies' room to talk to her and said, oh, I thought this was a different room with, you know, ladies on the door. Uh, and there were just a lot of things like that during this sequence. It was a few episodes of losing Michael and then getting him back. And um, putting her down because her hair was reddish. <laughs> I mean, my God, Michael, her hair is reddish. <laughs> How could you fall for her? But it was wonderful to have Stephanie have that kind, those doubts about herself. That was something she'd never felt before. That relationship between you and Peter Scolari's uh, character of Michael, I mean, that really developed as the show went on. And was that something that you guys had to work at or, or I mean, obviously you did work at it, but did it come relatively easy, I guess, is what I'm trying to, to ask. You know, working with Peter is the easiest thing in the world. And I'm sure everybody who works with Peter has 
chemistry with him. It's like improvising when you're working with him, even though you're not improvising. It's just so easy, and it was easy right from the start. And I could tell immediately he did a guest role, and I knew he'd be back, and of course they made him a regular. Um, but I I don't think Peter and I ever had to discuss anything very much. We're, we're not at all alike in person, but somehow we always heard it exactly the same way. We had exactly the same feeling about the scene. It required very little discussion, like almost none, because we just followed each other. It's one of those things. It, 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 we just were on the same wavelength from the start and always. Uh, Julia, I've told you before, I loved your book, Bad Auditions. I've shared it with uh, some of my recent uh, high school theater students as they've gone off into the world of college theater and auditioning uh, at the next level. And uh, one of the things, and we didn't talk about this last time around, was was uh, the story you tell about uh, getting to Hollywood when, when you arrived, fresh off an appearance on Broadway, and how you found out in Hollywood that essentially meant absolutely nothing. Yeah, they are two different businesses. It's just the way it is. In a place, in a country where you're 3,000 miles between the center of the theater world and the center of the film world, that's the way it's going to be. It's very divided. And you can't escape that fact. Everybody has their own prejudices, um, whether they're you know, out there in the open or subtly underneath, they're there. And, and you can't avoid it. Every business has its problems, you know. Our business isn't special in that way. Uh, uh, there are obstacles and difficult things in every occupation. I don't think that it's any different in our business. Um, what I would like to do, though, is find a way to get my book out to the people who need to read it. Mm. Because I have found that that generation is not on Twitter, which is, really the best place to promote a book right they're all on instagram but a book isn't a very visual thing and it doesn't really work on instagram and i've i following the book i had um a difficult year and i really just sort of dropped the whole thing but i should probably look into doing an audiobook or an ebook and go down that path because i think that is the way to reach my target audience well, and I think it would be and is such a valuable resource for, for young actors, uh, so much guidance. And one of the things you talk about in, in a terrific chapter, uh, Dear 20-Year-Old Me, uh, was if you could do it again, you would have done a better job using the resources around you, including those veteran actors that you got to work with. Yes. Uh, and I would just the other day, I was, because we were talking about this actor who passed, Mark Blum, who fascinated me. He He's a stalwart of theater in New York and very beloved. But one thing that came home to me when I was rehearsing the play that I did with him, an off-Broadway play about three years ago, is uh, don't leave the room when they're rehearsing a scene you're not in. Mm. Stay in the room because you will learn so much from watching the director direct other people, from watching the way other people work, especially when you're working with people of that caliber. You never stop learning. You learn every single day as an actor. You are better today than you were last yesterday, a lot better than you were last week. It's just the way it is. I did worry that the book 
wouldn't resonate with people because the business has changed so drastically since I started. So much harder to get into. But what I wanted to get across was that, um, uh, I guess, I had all of the same problems they did. I made all of the same mistakes as everyone else. And I still had a really good career. So everybody makes those mistakes just in case you think they don't. They do. Everybody does. The book is called Bad Auditions. Get it, read it, get it for a friend as well. Julia Duffy, it is a delight to have you on with us once again. Thank you so much for being with us today, and we wish you well. Stay safe out there, and then, uh, fortunately, you, like us here in Maine, have a good governor, so hopefully that's going to keep yeah. us in good shape. It's a good time to live in California, I will so, tell you. Uh, I wish my daughter wasn't in New York, but <laughs> she's doing all the right things. So thank you for giving me, you know, something to do while I'm in isolation. We're happy to be here for you. Thank you as always. Be well, Julia. Okay. Thanks, Rich. Julia Duffy here on Downtown, the podcast, talking a little new heart and about her book, Bad Auditions. We'll take a break and get a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. When we return, great stories from Billy Vera up next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown, the podcast, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell. Let's give a little listen to the latest Billy Vera album, Timeless. I see you trying to hide Down deep inside your shell I see that look in your it's one that I know well Now I'm not trying to come off to offensive I'm just trying to break down your defenses Oh, lonely girl <laughs> Billy Vera, Lonely Girl, from his new album, Timeless. Billy's got a lot going on. He's got a brand new book called Rip It Up, The Specialty Record Story. A documentary is out based on his memoir, Harlem to Hollywood. We enjoyed welcoming Billy back to the program to share some more stories here on Downtown. Billy, welcome back. Good to be with you, man. How are you doing in these challenging times? Well, I'm getting a lot of uh, solitary time here at the house. You know, they're, not, they're not letting anybody out here in L.A. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing here. They're encouraging people to stay home. Uh, just about everything is closed up. So yeah, we're all we're all getting to know the uh, interior of the house a whole lot better. Yeah, you bet. Well, well, it is what it is, man. So we'll just keep, we'll fight through it. Darn right, we'll make the most of it here. And in the meantime, it gives us a chance to to talk more with you because there were so many stories and so many people that you've worked with in your career that we didn't get a chance to talk about last time around. And uh, I want to just throw out a, a few names and, and talk about your relationship with him. And, and one that, that stood out to me in your wonderful memoir, Harlem to Hollywood, was 
Uh, Donna McKechnie, the wonderful Broadway star. Can you talk about what, what she did to help you out in your career? Well, Donna was married to my then manager, a fellow by the name of Al Schwartz. And Donna had been the lead dancer on a television show called uh, Hullabaloo. And um, so I, I got to know her a little bit back then. And she gave me some good advice about, you know, she, she was one of the great dancers of of the time. Uh, and she she showed me how to, the best way to stand on a stage. She said, she said, stand with your legs a little bit spread apart. She said, uh, women like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and, uh, and it worked pretty good. Uh, another uh, person who had a big influence on your career, can you talk a little bit about Murray Barber, who is a fascinating character in your book? Yeah, Murray uh, had passed away, and uh, he, was a, he was a sort of a Broadway Danny Rose type character, <laughs> if you remember that, Woody Allen. I sure do. And he was, he was, it could have been written about him, about Murray. And uh, he, he managed a group at one time called the Elegance, who had a, who had one number one record and then never made the charts again. Little Star, Little was that? Star. Yeah. Yeah, they were good. In fact, Vito, the lead singer of, uh, of the Elegance, uh, he is now a talent agent in New York. And a very nice guy, by the way. But Murray was one of these guys. He had a lot of big ideas, you know. He, he uh, sort of an overinflated uh, idea of of himself, and 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 nothing ever seemed to work out for poor Murray. You know, I hooked him up with my sister, who was an excellent singer, and uh, I had taught her how to write songs, and so she. Wound up writing some good songs too, and she was a pretty girl. and uh, And Murray somehow managed to get her uh, an audition with Creed Taylor, not to be confused with my songwriting mentor Chip Taylor. But Creed had come out of you know the jazz field, and he he uh, he had uh, produced uh, Stan Getz. Desifinato and Girl from Ipanema and, you know, Jimmy Smith, Walk on the Wild Side. And, and on the strength of that, he he started his own label, CTI Records, which became a, quite successful at making pop jazz albums, uh, you know. And uh, so he wanted to try something a little different. And uh, when he heard my sister, he really liked her. And... Uh, she was she was sort of a I, I don't want to say a folk singer but she was sort of of that Woodstocky kind of era type uh, of singer and, and songwriter and good at it. So uh, Murray gets the and and Creed had heard a song of mine called Good Morning Blues, which had been the B side of a hit record I had called With Pen in Hand. And uh, and he wanted to cut it with George Benson, and he did. And uh, and of course, just as the album was about to come out, uh, Creed gets the bright idea to do a jazz version of Abbey Road with George Benson. Mm. So the other album with my song on it got sort of 
put aside. And it came out about, I don't know, 15 years later, after George had really hit it big. Anyway, so to record my sister, uh, Creed uh, got Rudy Van Gelder's studio over there in New Jersey, uh, which is where all the great jazz albums on Blue Note and all these other labels had been recorded. And it was quite a big deal. But Murray, to fatten the, the, the game, he comes up with an idea that to, to have publishing on the songs that my sister wrote and that the publishing would be divided between Creed, my sister, myself, and Murray. But the way he presented it to me was that that this publishing company would publish everything that Creed put out on his label, which would have been, you know, an amazing deal had it come off, except that, you know, Murray had a way of presenting it to me that didn't sound as outlandish as it really was. <laughs> why on earth would Creed Taylor want to get into a deal like that, you know, and of course, that ended, uh, you know, my relation, my almost relationship with Creed Taylor. And, and was it Murray that that tried to, to get you together with legendary producer Lou Adler? Well, how that came about is uh, Murray had a friend out here in L.A. I was still living in New York, and I hadn't had any luck getting a record deal after, you know, the music had changed. Uh, and I just didn't, there was no room really basically for a, what was known as a blue eyed soul singer at that time. And I couldn't figure out how to fit in with the, the new music. I, I couldn't very well be a heavy metal guy. And, and I, I, I sure wasn't going to do disco and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be one of those wimpy singer-songwriters that became popular <laughs> at that time. You know, so I was trying to find a, a, a place for myself in a, in a, in a style that, that, that was original and could, that record companies could find in their minds that might be something that might sell. So Murray says, he says, listen, I got this friend out in L.A. He owns the studio where Richie Valens used to record, uh, and he's willing to give you six weeks of free studio time to make a record. You know, all you got to do is supply your musicians. So I got my bass player and my drummer to come out to California with me, and we, we spent six weeks out here making uh, an album, just the three of us. And so Murray takes it around to a couple of places, and he, he ends up going to this uh, this guy that worked for Lou Adler. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now. He was a well-known jazz saxophonist, and he was sort of uh, Lou Adler's listener. You know? And he loved it. And so he plays it for Lou, and Lou loved it. And uh, and Lou called, called me up, and he said... Uh, he said, man, 
he had, oh, by the way, Lou Adler had just come off of what was at that time the biggest album ever made, Tapestry by Carol <laughs> Right. And he said, he said, man, you are just what I'm looking for. You're, you're a guy that everybody in the industry respects, and nobody's ever been able to really figure out what to do with you. And, and, and I think I can. And it would be great for my ego to be the one that does for you what I did for Carol King. I thought it pretty good to me. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, he says, now what I want you to do is, is I want you to call me collect every day. He says, I'm finishing up Carol's follow-up album to Tapestry, and as soon as I finish that, I want to, I want to, I want to get with you. Oh, before that, he, he flies to New York and books uh, time at a studio for me to just sit at the piano and play the same songs for him without a band. And that's when he said all this that I just told you. Mm. And so I, you know, I dutifully called him, and he's filling my head with all these great things he wants to do for me and and how he thinks how great I am and all this stuff. This goes on for over a week. And finally, one day he says, okay, he says, listen, I'm just about finished with Carol's album now. And I'm ready to get get busy with you. He said, uh, "Have your manager call me, <laughs> and we'll make the deal." So I so I called up Murray and I said, "Listen, Murray, I know how you can get." I said, "You know, you're not you're not making a deal for Elvis Presley here. You know, I'm a guy that hasn't had a hit record in about four years, three years, whatever it was." I said, "Just." What, this guy can do what I need done for my for me, my career. I said I want to I want to do this. I said so. Whatever he offers offers, if it's not ridiculously, you know, in his favor and not in mine, take it. I said just don't, you know, don't be don't play the big shot this time. <laughs> don't worry, Billy. I'll 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 take care of it. So I was, as instructed, I, you know, I called Lou the next day. By now, his secretary, my new best friend, oh, hey, Billy, uh, yeah, he's, he's in there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put him on. And then she comes back and she's, she says, well, uh, he's on another call right now, but, uh, you know, he'll just hold on and he'll, he'll, call, he'll get on with you. Well, I'm on the line for a half hour. No loot. Finally, she comes back, and she, she's got this sound in her voice that doesn't sound good to me. You know, she's like, she wants to be loyal to her boss and not say anything. But she doesn't want, but she likes me, and she doesn't want to you know, hurt my feelings. And she says, well, Lou had to run out. But, uh, you know, call back tomorrow. And and so I called back to tomorrow, and I called back the next day. Never was ever able to get him on the phone again. Yeah. Now, this, this was at a time in my life when, you know, my career was really nowhere. And uh, and uh, I, I, I just knew in my heart that Murray had screwed it up. <laughs> 
And I said, what the hell did you ask for? I said, Murray, did you, you know, I know how you can get, and if you screwed this up, you and I are done. And uh, he just, you know, he didn't know what he had done. The poor guy. And the rest of his career, you know, uh, you know, I fired him after that, but the rest of his career, he did similar things with other people. He, you know, it was always like, he had big shot dreams, I call it. <laughs> you know, he had, he, he fancied himself uh, uh, Colonel Parker or something. <laughs> We're talking. He was Colonel Biberman, you know. <laughs> We're talking with Billy Vera here on Downtown. Billy, your name came up a couple of weeks ago uh, on the show. We were talking with Gene Cornish of the Rascals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just read his book. Yeah, that's what he was on talking with us about. That was a great book. Yeah, it was. You know, and of course, a lot of that, uh, I, I was uh, in that world during that period. Well, yeah, we were talking about uh, your thoughts and your comments uh, along with his about uh, the great Arif Martin. Oh, Arif was just a wonderful man. He was a great arranger. And he was a real gentleman, you know. He, uh, you know, at Atlantic Records, he he arranged uh, my record with pen in hand, and he did a couple other things for for me in Atlantic as well. In fact, he when I when I did my Capitol album some years later, a lot of years later, uh, he did the string charts on that as well that Tom Dowd produced. Last time you were on, uh, we, we talked about your acting career, and I, I we didn't have time for you to tell one of my favorite stories in your book. Can you can you tell a little bit of the story of uh, how you hit it off with director Blake Edwards? Oh, Blake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those that don't know Blake Edwards, he did uh, some, some just wonderful movies, you know, over the years that, you, that everybody would know, you know, he did great director and uh so we, we were hired to do this movie blind date which uh starred bruce willis in his first big movie role after he had gotten famous on a television show called moonlighting and i had met bruce before uh i think about the week after the the first episode of Moonlighting, I had seen it, and I said, boy, who is this guy? He's, he's going to be a star. You know, you could just tell. Well, he shows up at the, this club we were playing, and he comes up to me uh, in the middle of my set, and he said, uh, hey, man, I, I I saw your name on the marquee out front, and I just had to come in. He said, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. He said, Peter Weller, he said, I was a, I was a bartender at Peter Weller's uh, club in New York, and Peter bought 200 copies of your album and gave it to his friends, and, and, and that's how I became a fan of yours. I said, wait a minute. I said, aren't you that guy on that new show with Sybil Shepard? He said, yeah. I said, dude, I said, you're going to be you're gonna be big. You mark <laughs> my words. So for that, from that point onward, he started coming to all our shows, you know, and, until he got so famous that people were bugging him, you know, and he couldn't. He couldn't sit at a table and enjoy the show. So it was, it was nice that, that we ended up doing this movie with him. And, of course, the beautiful Kim Basinger was in it as well. 
So they brought me over to meet to meet Blake, uh, and he was uh, he was doing a, a scene with, uh, with with just Kim alone, and they were setting up uh, doing a lighting change, and so we had a chance to to talk a bit. And he said, "Oh, you know," he said, "Julie and I used to used to go see a lot of music." He said, uh, I heard your music, and I really loved it. He said, you, you got that, that, that old-time feeling with real songs. He said, not just a bunch of bullshit, you know, words thrown together. He says, you're a real songwriter, you know. And I said, wait a minute, you... He, he, oh, and he said, we used to go see all the, you know, big jazz stars. I said, wait, you and you've known Julie that long? <laughs> Julie Andrews, he's talking, he was married to her. Right. I said, you've been married to her that long? I didn't realize that. He said, oh, yeah. I said, I've been banging Mary Poppins for 20 years. <laughs> so I knew this was a test. So I knew I'd better come back with something clever. You know, that that was what he was testing to see if I could on, on my feet and, if, and whether I was intimidated by him. So I said, wow, that must be really something. I said, what does she do? She, she jumps up on the roof with that little umbrella from uh, <laughs> Song of Music and jumps off and lands, uh, lands sitting on your face. <laughs> and he, he, he just takes a beat, you know, and he looks at me right in the eye and says, you are a sick man. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of fun together. <laughs> and, and, and we did, you know. And... Uh, I remember. I remember one scene we did. There was it was a nightclub scene, and we're playing, and it was the scene where Bruce has been chasing Kim because she had gotten drunk on a on their blind date, and and she sort of went off, and he and he, he was worried about her, and she ends up in in this nightclub where we're playing, and uh, and and a and a brawl breaks out. So without telling me, Blake sends two stunt women up to attack me because he wanted a natural reaction from me. And, and so in, in the old days, when there when I played a lot of clubs where there were not just fist fights but gunfights, I mean all kinds of brawls, knife fights, I, I would pick up my microphone stand and start swinging it to keep the people away, <laughs> the fighters. And so I started to do that, but in the in the in the scuffle, uh, I, my 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 leg got cut, <laughs> you know, my pants, <laughs> and I'm bleeding, you know, and uh, and then we went through, we we finished the scene, and so the next day, uh, Joe Dunn, who was who had been Blake's uh, lead stuntman for 20 years, he and all the stunt guys came in the next day, and they brought me a an official stuntman's T-shirt and cap and badge. He said, "He said you are now one of us. You're an official stuntman." <laughs> and I said, "Man, I said I can't think of a greater award to get than that." Billy Vera with us here on Downtown in your book, uh, and I, I need you to address this because well, I know others who have have dealt with this fate. Billy, you say you've had a lifelong addiction to narcissistic beauties. Yes, I have. You know, I mean, I don't do, I've never done drugs. I've never done alcohol or cigarettes or any of the 
the usual addictions that most musicians have. But uh, yeah, and I think I think that came from when I was very young. You know, my mother was a singer, and uh, and a lot of times when I was a little boy, I'd have to go with her to the shows. You know, for lack of a when there wasn't a babysitter. And so I'd be in the dressing room with, you know, a room full of half-naked dancers and singers, you know, and just sitting around in their underwear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they I'm a cute little boy, and they all sitting me up on their laps, on their half-naked laps, and <laughs> pinching me and kissing me and, and making a fuss over this little boy. And, and so I, I just uh, sort of assumed that that's what my life was going to be, <laughs> surrounded by beautiful girls. And uh, when I went into show business, I found that, you know, you could look like uh, a gorilla and have the brain of a toad, and pretty girls are going to chase after you when you on that stage. You know, there's something about being on stage that, that's attractive. You know, it's, it, I think it's they see they see you as the most powerful figure in the room, and that attracts a certain type of female, and uh, and usually the, the the ones that are the most beautiful tend to be rather narcissistic. You know, uh, you know they've been told all their life how beautiful they are and how great they are, and they believe it. And uh, for some twisted <laughs> psychological reason, uh, I've always found that attractive and can't say no to them. Right Now I'm an old man, you know, <laughs> they don't come banging on my door, calling me up on the phone at 2 o'clock in the morning anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but for many years they did, and, uh, you know, that became... An addiction, and, and I, I, I was in therapy about, uh, uh, largely about that one problem until one time my therapist, who was this, by that time, uh, an old lady, and you know, and she said, "You know what your problem is? You're 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 only attracted to exceptionally beautiful women." She said, "If if you could only fall in love with." A normal woman, you know, a, a secretary, you know, a hairdresser, or, you know, just a normal woman. You'd probably do a lot better for yourself. <laughs> a nurse, you know, school teacher. But you, you, you have to have these, these actresses, these, you know. And uh, she said, I've been a therapist for 35 years, and I've treated some of the biggest, most famous actresses, and the biggest nobodies in town and I'll tell you every single one of them has been a narcissist she said so you know you're fighting the odds when you go after women mm -hmm. like that yeah, absolutely you know, so uh, but it, it was a, it was a lesson that she was never able to teach me <laughs> uh, Billy I want to talk a little bit about your your newest book which is just great uh, rip it up the specialty record story. You posted oh, a wonderful you. picture the other day of uh, your longtime friend, uh, Mr. Arthur Newton Goldberg, best known to the world as Art Roop, and, and what an amazing story he's got. 
he's an amazing man. Uh, he's 102 years old now, and uh, and I, I go up to. He lives up in Santa Barbara now, and he he he, run, he runs his uh, philanthropic foundation up there uh, five days a week. Mm. And the women at the office uh, tell me that he works harder than any of them. Although he says, "Oh, I only work five day, five hours a day now <laughs> at 102." You know, but I'll tell you something: he's he's sharper than any five people I know put together. You know, he's got an amazing memory, and he's he's got an amazing mind. I mean, he's got. I mean, I've known some really smart people in my day he's he's up there with any of them well we know about specialty records and and what they did with little richard of the soul stirs but some performers that people may not be familiar with can you talk a little bit about really the first uh, big success for art roop and specialty roy milton yeah roy milton was almost 40 years old by the time he made his first record and um you know, at the time, you know, Art liked the big bands, you know, like Lucky Millinder, the big black bands, uh, Erskine Hawkins, and Count Basie, and a lot of those people. But he didn't have any money to uh, to do sessions with, you know, 15 or 18 men. So he, he, he started, he noticed that uh, Louis, uh, Louis Jordan was popular, and he had a, he had a five-piece band. So he heard uh, he heard Roy with his band, and uh, and they were that small combo size. And he, he said, he said, you know, I, I bet with if if we if I rehearse these guys before we go in the studio, and if we are careful with the arrangements, and we can make them sound almost like a, a one of the big bands. And uh, that's what he did. And, you know, he had like, I think, 18 top 10 records over a, a decade that Roy was was with Specialty Records. In fact, he told me once, he said, you know, he said I know in the end, he said, Roy sold more records than Little Richard did. Mm. Of course, you know, that music, you know, Roy's music didn't cross over to the white teenage market. Right. You also make a pretty uh, compelling case uh, for the first rock and roll record not being the one that gets a lot of the credit, uh, Rocket 88, Jackie Brinson, but uh, Jimmy Liggins' song. Yeah, Jimmy had a record. Jimmy Liggins was the younger brother of, uh, of Joe Liggins, who had a huge record on another label called uh, uh, The Honey Dripper that reputedly sold three million records. I don't know. It's hard to, hard to know that because so much hyperbole. But uh, Jimmy had uh, a record called Cadillac Boogie, 1947, which is what five years before Rocket 88. And I'll tell you, to my ears, it's it's got that that wildness that uh, that didn't exist in other R&B records in 1947. There were, I mean, there were 47 was a great year for rhythm and blues, although it, it wasn't called rhythm and blues yet called race music right at the time which was not a was not a bad word it was it was actually a word of pride that people, black people used pride but at any rate uh 
yeah, I mean, you had Louis Jordan, you had uh, Wynoni Harris, you had T-Bone Walker, you had a lot of real great rhythm and blues records uh, in 1947, but they, they didn't sound like they were out of control, which I thought was a, a, a major component of what what made rock and roll different than rhythm and blues, aside from the subject matter. Right. You know, uh, cars. You know, cars was something that teenagers could relate to. And, uh, and, and of course, black music in the 40s was not really written for teenagers. The, the whole idea of teenagers was not a, a thing yet. You know, I mean, of course, there were people in their teens, but... Right, but it wasn't this special class of people that had music and other products geared specifically toward them. I couldn't have said it better. You know, it wasn't until the, the boomer generation came along and that, that, that there were so many of them, and, and thus they became a, a market. Even as little kids, you know, special records were made for these little kids, you know, these little yellow records that, you know, with Bugs Bunny and all that stuff, or hula hoops or slinkies or special toys for these little special kids. And uh, and by the time they became teenagers, they, you know, America was doing pretty well economy-wise. And uh, so there was money and allowances, money that they could spend of their own which, you know, people in their teens didn't really have before that. And so uh, then they started saying, well, why not market records for teenagers? You know, and they became uh, a thing to be exploited. And indeed and they, they were. were. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Billy's book is wonderful about specialty records. It's called Rip It Up, the specialty record story. Also, a check out the terrific memoir and uh, the documentary based on it, Harlem to Hollywood, uh, the brand new album as well, which is wonderful. Billy, it's great to talk with you again. We uh, so appreciate you making some time for us this afternoon. Uh, be well and be safe out there and that in the isolation we're all in. And hopefully we can we can all get out of the house sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, stay healthy yourself, buddy. Thanks for having me. Billy Vera telling stories. I, we could just do, I don't know, we could do about three hours, Carrie. Just <laughs> say, Billy, roll the ball out and let him go. Yes, and the stories and the people that he has touched base with over the years. And again, we, I've said it before, when you do 50 years in, <laughs> in show business, you're going to have some people that you've met. I may never look at Julie Andrews the same way after that. <laughs> Uh, good stuff from Billy Vera. Check out his new album, Timeless, his book on specialty records called Rip It Up, and his wonderful memoir and the documentary based on it called Harlem to Hollywood. Our thanks to Billy Vera and Julia Duffy for joining us this week, and thanks to you as well. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.